You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2309 North Broad Street. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. I'm Andrea. This is Carrie. Um, Carrie joins us from our Frankfurt Ave congregation, and she works at Prevention Point, which um, is an agency in Kensington that does a lot of the really on-the-ground harm reduction work um, directly with um, a lot of the folks in Kensington who are affected by the opioid epidemic. I work at Pathways to Housing. Um, We house homeless folks. um, I work on a team that Pathways First team dedicated specifically to people with opioid addiction history. I've been doing administrative work on that team for two years. Um, I also have lived in Kensington for three years, so we're just going to kind of have a little dialogue about um, this issue that's um, really kind of risen in as a problem of our health as a city. Um, In 2016, there were 900 reported overdose deaths in Philadelphia, and in 2017, it rose to 1,200. So it's something that is rising rapidly, um, and Carrie and I interact with people every day who are directly affected by it. So to us, it's more than a statistic, um, and it's something that we relate to really strongly that also affects our faith. Um, So I hope that we can give you guys a better understanding of that and also how we might relate to God through issues like this um, and maybe still have hope throughout it. Um, So we're going to get started. I'm going to mostly be asking Carrie questions, but I'll also be kind of um, sharing some input myself. Um, And if you want to ask me any questions back, go for it. Um, So tell us a little bit about the work that you do. Um, What does a day look like for you at Prevention Point? Yeah, so um, the main kind of service that Prevention Point offers is that we are a drop-in center open from 7 a.m. until 6 p.m., seven days a week. So the goal is to have people be inside rather than outside because the community was giving um, the city government a lot of slack for having so many people on the streets. So we were given some funding to kind of be open for more time. So that started in May that we started being open seven days a week. Um, I am the social worker for the drop-in center. So I pretty much handle all the crises that come in the door. So. Um, I deal with a lot of people who come in and just say they're done, they want to kill themselves. Um, A lot of largely women who have just been raped or abused or physically or sexually assaulted or harassed in some way. Um, And then a lot of people who are just like, I can't get treatment, I'm I'm just gonna go use three bags and hope it takes me out. Um, So a lot of issues of like treatment barriers, a lot of suicidality, um, and then a lot of Uh, females who have been victimized in some way. So I deal with most of that, um, but Prevention Point as a whole offers numerous services, including testing for HIV and Hep C, linkage to treatment, 
We have an on-site bilingual um, HIV clinic with a doctor from Philadelphia Fight, and that clinic's called Clinica Bienestar. Um, we have case managers who meet with clients and do welfare applications, things like that. We offer mail services. We are known for our syringe exchange, so we will take their used needles and works and give them clean ones. So clean needles, clean cookers, clean tourniquets, clean cotton, saline water, everything that they would need to inject safely, as well as um, clean crack pipes. So all things that you could potentially transmit a disease on, we try and get clean ones out there. Um, so among other things, those are like the most popular services. How did you get connected to the work there? I spent a day in Kensington at my old job when they were cleaning out the train tracks. And I, well, spent the day like in it. Um, and met a lot of people and heard a lot of stories and grew interested in the work and did some research to see who was doing the good work. Um, and Prevention Point came up and I applied on a whim and got the job. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll go in a little bit further into more specifics of harm reduction in your work, but we kind of wanted to give you guys an overview of some of the issues out there and um, just kind of basic, what does addiction look like? What does treatment look like? Um, so how does someone start using opioids? Um, I know there are so many different ways, um, but maybe tell us a couple of the different stories of how people get into that. Yeah, I have heard everything from, I mean, and often I hear, I was in a car accident or I had back surgery and the doctor prescribed me this opiate and I grew addicted to it. And when the doctor would no longer fill or give me another prescription, I heard about heroin and the withdrawal symptoms that I was experiencing were so terrible that I started injecting dope to self-medicate. Um, so I hear that often, like more so than I thought I would prior to getting into the work. Um, but then I also hear things like, my mom injected me for the first time, or my pimp injected me for the first time. Um, so having it not necessarily be the choice of the person. Um, there's a lot of like human trafficking that goes on. Kensington is like a hub for that. So a lot of the largely, again, women who are um, victims of human trafficking, it's nine times out of 10, it wasn't their choice to start using, or it wasn't even something that they physically like did to themselves. Um, I had one client who, who was sold to a pimp when she was 11 and the pimp immediately just started injecting her with heroin and now she's 24 and in a full-fledged addiction. So I hear all of that. I never have heard ever, I just wanted to try it one day. That's like never been the, the story that I've heard. It's always been because of something or I hear like super severe trauma, some type of prescribed opiate was the start or because it wasn't their choice. That's what is typically the story. Totally. Um, when we were talking earlier, we both had said something that resonates with us is we hear people say a lot, well, why don't they just get into treatment? Um, can you describe what, how someone might seek treatment and what barriers there might be? Oh, God, this like, just makes me so angry when I talk about it. Um, so all of treatment in Philadelphia is funneled through an organization called CBH, or Community Behavioral Health. 
if you have insurance. If you don't have insurance, it's funneled through something else. So clients are super, super vulnerable when they come in and say, I'm ready for treatment. So if we can't get them something in a few hours, they're gonna be dope sick again and they're gonna go back out and look for their next use. Um, but it always takes more than a few hours to figure out what to, how to get them into treatment. So you have to first be approved by your insurance company. You have to have Philadelphia ID, though thank goodness that is changing now. Kind of, depends on the place. Um, and you, yes, you have to have all of those things in place and then there has to be a bed open. So you could go through the whole process of being approved by insurance, you have your ID, and then you call the actual treatment place and they're like, there's no beds, call tomorrow. And for someone that doesn't have a phone and is just in survival mode because they are always looking for their next high, they're not calling again tomorrow, largely. They're not calling again tomorrow. That's too much to ask of them. So uh, like the, the procedure for getting into treatment is so complex and so difficult. And if you have like Medicare insurance, there's like one place that you can go for treatment in Philadelphia. Um, so there's so many insurance barriers. There's so many identification barriers for people that are here from New Jersey or from a different um, county in Pennsylvania. It's almost impossible. Yeah, I would add something too that like a lot of times it depends on who you know. Um, we've had people like call friends that they know at certain treatment centers and be able to get people in quicker. Um, but if you don't have that connection, it would probably be a lot harder. And again, echoing that you have this really small window mm -hmm. of when someone might want to access those services. Um, so it can be really challenging. Um, your work and mine both use this term harm reduction a lot. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that looks like at Prevention Point? Yeah, so our um, logo, if you will, is to reduce the harm associated with drug use and sex work. So again, clean needles, condoms, HIV, hep C testing, um, talking about safe injection, like I will sit with clients and say like, looks like you've used that vein a lot, let's just try a new one, but leave one for your doctor too, things like that, or conversations I never thought I would ever hear myself having with someone, um, but do on a daily basis. Um, so yeah, it's really just about reducing the harm and helping someone survive and survive and survive and survive so that maybe someday they will um, choose a different path or be allowed a different path if we're talking about insurance issues or stuff like that. Can you talk about some of the opposition you may have heard towards harm reduction practices? Enabling. Yeah. Always enabling. Um, like why would you give clean needles that's encouraging them to use or why would you um, give crack pipes or things like that or why would you tell them how to inject um, are questions that we get all the time and the our foundational belief is that it's a substance use disorder, and that's how it's seen medically too. Um, and the brain actually is like wired differently for someone who has the disorder. So just stopping is not an option. Um, just deciding something else sometimes is not an option either. So we want, if they're going to continue to do it, which they are for at least a certain amount of time, we want them to do so as safely as possible and with as little risk as possible. Totally. Um, what do you see as most misunderstood about the opioid crisis? 
I think it's about what the intentions are of the people in it. Like, I think about all of my clients, and they, like, um, are protective of each other. They have such a community. Like, they love each other so much and care for each other so much um, and look out for each other. Um, they don't want to be where they're at. No one ever. Like, they don't want to be homeless on the streets of Kensington feeling dirty and yucky and definitely feeling unwanted by the community. Um, they don't want to have nowhere to use the bathroom. They don't want to um, be far from their families and friends. So I think just all of the, I've heard so many people just kind of put assumptions on them. And then when you talk to them and hear their stories, it just like crosses out all of the um, assumptions people make about them. Totally. Um, something I hear a lot when I talk to other people about my work, um, specifically people who don't live in Philadelphia, um, people usually tell me, wow, that sounds really hard, but it must be so rewarding. Um, and I like really struggle with how to respond to that um, because a lot of times it's not rewarding. Um, the little victories that we have sometimes pale in comparison to some of the deep struggle that there is. Um, how do you react to that and how do you maintain hope um, in the deep struggle? Yeah, I don't think, I think I just like chuckle when someone says that because I'm like, oh God, it doesn't feel that way usually. Um, because it, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't, it's hard, it's dirty. I think like in the past month I've had four clients die and only one was of an overdose, another was because he was stabbed. Another, he just like had HIV and passed one night. So, um, yeah, it doesn't in those moments feel rewarding at all. Or like one day last week, there were 36 overdoses on our block. And I think all I did was just run from person to person to person and reverse and reverse and reverse. And at the end of the day, I was like, what just happened? Um, so in those moments, it doesn't really feel rewarding. But I think what is like always hopeful is just that I love those people so much. And they like reciprocate that love not that I needed it but that they do and I was not expecting that at all um what I often do is just go for like walks around the block to pick up needles and I call them like my mental health walks I'll just grab the, the sharps container and a pair of tongs and I'm like I'm out for 15 minutes um and I have one client who will just follow me because he's like Miss Carrie I'm not letting you walk alone around here and he just like looks out for me or whatever um, and it's those relationships that probably have major boundary issues, um, but they're like, they're so fun. And I just love that I get to be a part of their life and that they get to be a part of mine because they encourage me all the time. Um, so that's the rewarding part. I think it's not about like, it's not measured outcomes or anything because that, it probably doesn't look good on paper, like numbers of people in treatment or people who totally got out of it. I don't think that looks good, but just the fact that we can know these people and they can know us, and that like if nothing else, we will have a little vigil if they pass or something like that. That is beautiful. Yeah. How do you 
take care of yourself besides these like little uh, walks? What are some other things that you incorporate into your lifestyle to, yeah, um, kind of cope with what you experience day to day? Yeah, well, I'm lucky to have coworkers who are awesome. So we often just like, we'll take times to debrief, which is good um, and kind of forces us to process it because so often I feel like we're just reacting to crises all day long that the moment you like finish with one there's another and you didn't get a chance to process the last one so we have like forced times to like sit in the pain of it which is good and healthy um, but then outside of work I'm signing up for therapy because <laughs> I need it um, uh, and I mean being a part of this community and things like that give me hope and seeing people who care about um, the clients that I love so much also gives me hope. But self-care is hard. It's totally hard. <laughs> I like am in a position at my work where I might switch into case management. Mm -hmm. And I have like had to say over and over again, if I do this, I need to quit something else. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't do what I'm doing now and still like give this much um, towards this thing. Mm -hmm. So I hear you on that. Um, how does your work connect with your faith? I think that like when any client walks into our building or I'm working with any client, it's just no questions asked, it's acceptance. It's like love without conditions. It's not like you have to quit and then we'll love you or you have to sign up for this service and then we'll treat you well. It's just you're human, so we're gonna love you and care for you. And I think that is such like a, exactly how Jesus loves all of us and all of them. Like, it's not under conditions. It's not because we do or don't do something. It's just because we are his and he's ours. And I think just thinking about that every day, even the clients that I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> you said you were gonna do this, then you didn't. Um, but just like, loving them through it because they just deserve the love because they are. Um, it's pretty simple. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, I, this morning, was kind of thinking through um, this conversation and what we um, might talk about, and I was just spending some time meditating on it, and like the first thing that came to my mind when I sat down was um, this Taizé song that we sing um, that the lyri lyrics are the kingdom of God is justice and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Come Lord and open in us the gates of your kingdom. And I just kept thinking about this on earth as it is in heaven thing and I know that like this isn't what heaven looks like but like I want more people to experience the kingdom of God and I really like lean into the justice aspect, like this is what you're saying, like talking about getting people into treatment. It's like, we need justice, like, and that is something that I lean into with God, but the like peace and joy part of it is a lot harder. Um, and still like the talking about that hope thing, um, leaning into peace um, in the midst of all of it, I'm still learning how to do, but I'm hoping that like 
still spending that time meditating on it and like repeating those words to myself, it'll be a part. Um, but also even just, I am like you're talking about getting to meet all different kinds of people. I um, need to constantly be reminded that my faith is not just my own or of people that look like me and it belongs to like so many other people who lead such different lives and my work has helped me meet those people. Um, and I'm like, oh yeah, God, relates to these people and not in the language that I use has been really important. Um, what is the main takeaway that you would want people to get from a conversation like this? I think I wish that when I heard communities talk about it, people talk about it, governments talk about it, I wish it were humanizing language. like. If I could never hear the word junkies again, <laughs> that would be amazing. Except, the side note, funny story, one of our clients on like the side of our dumpster wrote, junkie lives matter. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm not sure what to say about this. <laughs> I don't know if I should laugh at it, be like, who did this, whatever, but anyway. Um, I just, I hear so much language about like, what do we do with them, or what do we do with this issue or what do we do with you know instead of like how can we love these humans the way that Jesus loves us um, how can we like instead of saying addicts can we say like drug users or individuals using drugs or sex workers is an empowering term um, how can we like change our language around it to humanize the issue. And that doesn't mean you have to even personally know someone affected by it, but even just as we're talking about it or advocating for different things, um, I think just remembering that who we are talking about are human beings um, with feelings, and they are human beings who don't want to be where they're at. Um, that is what I wish. Something that you and I had also talked about is the intersectionality of the issues. There's so many different layers of what's going on. And for me, this, what I'd like people to take away is to keep asking questions mm -hmm. and to not um, simplify any of it. Um, it. Every person's story is different and it's really complex. And the way that our city is interacting with it too is really complex. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't mean there isn't a place to speak out, um, but it's still like, I find sometimes when I try to like, the few times when I've tried to tell one of my clients something, like as if I know more than they do, they already know it. Um, and so just like listening to them first, um, to me, like, would help so much of what's going on right now. Um, that is all we have for you guys, unless you, if you have anything else you wanna share, a question. Yeah, so we wanna open it up for some questions. You can ask um, either Carrie or I. Um, the floor is yours. Uh, what kind of questions do you ask someone who first comes to the prevention point when you're trying to get to know them? 
I'm like, hey, what's your name? <laughs> English or Spanish? <laughs> um, yeah, that, and then if it's their first time here, I make sure that they know all about the different services that we offer. Um, and then ask them, like, how long have you been in Kensington? Try and, like, gauge where they're at. Um, we do just straight up ask, like, what drugs are you using? Because we like to know, and we're not here to, like, arrest you or judge you. And people tend to feel pretty safe to talk about that the moment that they walk in. Um, but yeah, usually, are you hungry? Do you need clothes or anything? Um, just like the basic survival questions and then get into deeper stuff if they, if they want to or if they just want to sit down and sleep too, that's cool. Um, you mentioned that trying to get people like into a treatment like facility is like really difficult. Like, have is have you guys seen any like other cities or like places that like are doing it well or like what kind of like like what can make that kind of happen? No IDs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. So I don't know about other cities doing it well. I also think we're like nationally speaking, we have the biggest problem. So I don't know if going off another city's thing would work for us just because our problem is always seemingly pretty big. Um, but I would say no ID, that's the big thing. Clients get robbed all the time. They have their ID for a day and then the next day they don't. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, IDs. Yeah, totally. Um, I was looking up our, in just like the area, I think we're third in overdose rates, but this includes like other county-wide. Ours is just Philadelphia. Um, I think Baltimore is up there with us as well. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, this is something that we're talking about as a city-wide level, but Vancouver um, has um, safe injection sites. Uh, Philadelphia is trying to use the word Qs um, or the acronym, uh, which stands for Comprehensive User Engagement Sites, um, which is a place where people can go and inject and be supervised while they're doing that um, by medical staff or case management who are prepared to respond to an overdose, but also um, so that they can access treatment if they want it or other types of services. Um, that's why they're trying to kind of rebrand it so that they can say that it's comprehensive and not say just use highlight the word injection because that scares people too. Um, but the mayor has kind of given a green light but there is a lot more work to be done there of um, what it would actually mean for that to be in Philly but they're they've been, had a good model, and it's like drastically reduced the cost um, to the city for medical care. It um, reduces the amount of needles that are in the street, um, and I mean, really, it just saves lives. Well, I think you were next. Yeah, yeah I, I, my, my original question was how, how encouraged are you or not with the city's response, but it sounds like there's still a ways to go. Um, what, what do you have to get through in order for it to be accomplished? The, the mayor has been pretty supportive of, of harm reduction. He has given, so Prevention Point also has two shelters in Kensington. There's no other shelters in Kensington other than the two we have. 
Um, so there's two 40-bed respites in Kensington that the mayor has supported and, and found some funding for. Um, and now we're in the process of a third. So the mayor has been really supportive of, of harm reduction, of figuring out humane ways to approach this. Um, but it seems like there's been a lot of um, strife with the councilmen and women, specifically the one whose district prevention point is in, um, Maria Quinones. She's not um, not having it. <laughs> Just as she. <laughs> That's fine. Um, yeah, she's not having it. She doesn't, she wants, I don't want to speak for her, but she wants nothing to do with um, more services in the area because she thinks then that that is drawing them to the neighborhood. And a lot of neighbors around Kensington um, have been so like emotionally affected by what's going on and it's something that just like within the last couple of years it's always it's been there for a while but the last couple of years has really amped up and it affects them so viscerally that they I think often what I hear at community meetings is just like I just want it out just get it out of here um, and if they see more services as as Carrie was saying, welcoming more people. Um, yeah, I think that also with the support from the city, um, yeah, the mayor has been pretty supportive. Something we're experiencing right now, um, we're just approved to start another housing team for people with opioid addiction, um, but are being asked to do it like super quickly and with not a ton of funding. Um, so it puts a lot of stress on the social service agency. Um, but we're like trying to catch up as fast as possible. And then I think there's um, some question of whether it'll get like, whether federally people will step in and say that um, they should, we shouldn't be using these types of harm reduction efforts. Yeah, the federal government, I mean, at this point, if, if a safe injection site or a comprehensive user engagement site opened in the states, the feds at this point in time are saying that they would come and just arrest everyone, mm -hmm. including the people working there. So um, I don't think that's really surprising necessarily, but that's, yeah, there's like some, there's disagreement among like the city, state, and then federal level governments. questions for you may have heard. Uh, one is um, how do you, especially we've been hearing about the stories of how people may have gotten heroin addicted in the first place, there's a little tension there just because I feel like if we, if there are like harm reduction sites which you know, are allowing people to use it safely, I think what sometimes I hear, and I know what people hear, is like you're allowing them to use and it's kind of like, you know, there's sort of that enabling aspect that I know is more complex than that, but it's like, you know, it's like, is there like a path to recovery, especially considering um, the information that, you know, it takes a long time and they have a very short window to kind of get treatment and, you know, hopefully to the point where they don't use it anymore, but it's like a very difficult thing. Uh, so there's, that's one question, like, is there a path to recovery that harm reduction sites, like, 
officially have. And I think number two that's on my mind is that, you know, I think kind of like when people are looking at the opioid epidemic, epidemic, they're kind of seeing it as like we should be compassionate, but it's kind of taking people back to like the war on drugs, which was largely minority. And the response was like, I would say a lot less compassionate. And they were kind of met with disdain and violence. So, like, how do you like reconcile with that? Because I think you know, unfortunately, you know, the history of systemic race, racism has made it so that even this issue becomes like, you know, kind of what about us? Where was this when we? Where was this compassion when we needed it for like the war on drugs? Like, how do you deal with that sort of history and like wrapping your brain around? Um, to the first question, um, a path to recovery, I mean, so to safely get off of using, it has to be under medical supervision. Otherwise, like, withdrawal could kill you if you, if you try and do it without. Um, and I don't, I mean, I've seen people try and do it before on their own, and it, I mean, it's almost like more painful to see than someone overdosing. It's, it's bad. Um, so... In my opinion, a path to recovery has to, it doesn't necessarily mean that the person has to use medically assisted treatment, but it does mean that they have to detox off of it right. under yeah. medical supervision. Oh, okay. That is what we would encourage. I, would, I okay. don't think I could ever legally or professionally say to someone, just just try and stop, like it'll be okay. Yeah, so, it's not that easy. Yeah, so the path to recovery typically has okay. to include something medically supervised. Totally, and I would say that like, beyond that first part of like, yeah, this medical supervision that could be like detox inpatient or even just starting on medically assisted treatment, there are so many different ways um, to get into recovery. Um, and celebrating any little moment of recovery is good too. Also knowing how people wanna be celebrated and a participant who was just like encouraged so much that he got overwhelmed and started using again. Um, and so like thinking of those types of things, but knowing that there are options of medically assisted treatment where people can use um, methadone, Suboxone, Vivitrol, these substances that will kind of help reduce the um, withdrawal effects and other like safer ways of um, being. Um, the second question, um, yeah, it, so Carrie, you can talk about this as well, but um, in Philadelphia, um, it definitely, I was looking at the statistics this morning and there, the rates are highest of white male users, um, but it's not that much lower. Next is um, Hispanic males and then um, African American males. And it, Philly, it's really affecting people of a wide variety of backgrounds. Nationally, it's a little bit different. Um, and I like think it's, really important to listen to people who've been through the war on drugs and the craft epidemic and um, acknowledge that we didn't, like, the U.S. didn't do a good job with that. But at the same time, people are dying 
now. Yeah, and I think to that point, if um, like another reason Philadelphia was trying to use the term comprehensive user engagement site is because it would be a place to inject, but also a place to snort, a place to smoke, a place to use in whatever capacity you use safely, taking into consideration um, that, that fact, exactly. Yeah. Um, but we still see the war on drugs played out today too, unfortunately. I have so many young men of color smoking K2, which is synthetic marijuana, which like sends them into psychotic episodes. You never know what's in it, um, all because they are on parole or probation for some other drug-affiliated thing years ago, and they have to have clean urines, so they're smoking this other stuff that is totally messing them up, um, but does not show up in a urine because no one knows what it is yet, so they don't know what to look for. Um, so to that point, like I wish I could say, oh, the war on drugs is over. It's not. It's still here, and I think we're like, Harm reduction services, I know at least like Prevention Point is aware of how much of a failure that was and is, and is trying to combat it every day, and that's why our services are like inclusive of all users. And if you walk into Prevention Point, it doesn't look largely white, I wouldn't say. Um, so that, so again, that's to her point of just like, on a Philadelphia level, it really is crossing all demographics um, of race, socioeconomic stuff, I mean, everything, so. Did you have something? Yeah, I was just curious, like, how is your funding? Be across board, federal, state, local, or private donor, like, how are you guys, like, you find that pretty hard, or are you getting a lot of support, or? Yeah, um, for Prevention Point, we are about 80% city funding, and then 20% private, like, donors, donations, stuff like that. The city has strongly supported um, what we do. Like we started as an illegal needle exchange in the 90s and then became legit. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the city like gives us specific hours that we can hand out clean needles. Um, every person that is like a part of our exchange has a card that says like, I am legally allowed to carry needles in the county of Philadelphia. Um, so yeah, 80% city, 20% donors. A lot of our donation money goes straight to Narcan because the uh, pharmaceutical companies now are rising the, raising the prices of Narcan all the time too. And we're giving it out and using it all the time. So um, if someone donates to Prevention Point, like an individual or like a family or a community, the money's probably going to buy more Narcan. So not much like state or federal or nothing mm -hmm. of that sort, it's more just- City, yeah. For us, it's all of the above. It's city, federal, and private donor. Um, we Housing First is like relatively new. So Housing First, what Pathways uses is we work mostly with people who've been on the streets a year or more um, and put them first into apartments um, and then do intensive case management with them so that they have something like a place to all their own and it's like for specifically for opioid addicted folks um, people are using drugs it's really hard to like even think about treatment if you don't have housing mm -hmm. as well um, so tangent um, but we're the, like some of the first people in the country doing 
um, housing first with people who use opioids. And um, housing first has had like incredible success and has lowered the amount of money that we're spending on stuff. Um, and Carson visited us um, like a couple months ago, which was weird, but um, we like, it sh kind of shows that HUD is interested in the model that we yeah, use. Doing the listening tours of the women. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think like a lot, sometimes with funding, yeah, it comes down to like, how can we save the most money? Um, and um, it's, like cool that ours is saving money and works. Mm -hmm. um, like it has shown good results. Mm -hmm. cool. I have a question. Bethany. Okay. Um, I've been seeing a lot of bus stop ads for Narcan recently and it seems like more and more people are knowing about like what Narcan is, what it does. Um, can you tell us more about that? How easy or difficult it is to get a hold of it and how people are using it who aren't social workers or medical yeah, um, I'm happy you've seen signs for Narcan. First of all, that's a good step. Um, what'd you say? I saw one downtown yesterday. Yes. I was like, Whoa, yes. Yes. Okay. Um, so Narcan is a reversal drug. It blocks the receptors in the brain. So it, um, if someone is in the state of an overdose, um, you put the Narcan in one of their nostrils, push up. It's really easy, um, and then weight and typically the person would come to. Um, that's what it does, it blocks the receptors. The important thing to know is that it does not at all remove the opiate from the system. So two, three hours after the Narcan wears off, the person will probably feel high again and there's a chance that they will fall back into an overdose again. So that's like bare bones Narcan, how it, how it works type of thing. Um, where you can get it, um, State law, Pennsylvania state law, is the prescription for Narcan. So if you have Medicare or Medicaid insurance, you can get Narcan at a pharmacy for free. Other insurance companies, it's not so great. If I had to use my own insurance, I think it'd be like $100 to get Narcan at a pharmacy. Um, into, or Blue Cross Independence just waived the copay like oh, a couple months ago. So I think anyone, because I think that's what I'm Never mind about. then. Yeah, or most people have. 75 when we bought ours. Okay. I guess that was great. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, I got a letter that says that. Awesome. So, yeah. I'm gonna try that. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah, That's what I have yeah. too. Um, so, yeah. So, with some insurance, you can get it for free. And we have like a, a pharmacy come to prevention point on Fridays during our exchange hours. So, people, like, we make everyone that gets needles get Narcan too. Um, and then we hand it out at prevention point to anyone too. If someone walks in and is like, I need Narcan. We will not turn them away. We will train you on how to use it, hand you the Narcan, and you can go, and it takes 15 minutes to be trained on it. Um, so we hand it out to clients all the time, and largely our clients are saving each other's lives. Um, I have had multiple clients assist me in reversing someone, so that's awesome, too. Um, but yeah, pharmacies or... Um, they do trainings downtown. The Department of Behavioral Health does trainings downtown. Um, the outreach coordinator from Prevention Point goes um, and does trainings. So you can sign up for an Arcan training. You can walk into Prevention Point. You can go to a pharmacy. It's really easy. You don't have to like be necessarily medically trained on it. Someone just has to tell you how to do it, and it's simple. You could talk to either of us. And yes. We can tell you how to do it. <laughs>
just uh, after that point, if you do get someone Narcan, you're going to throw them into withdrawal mm-hmm. very quickly, um, and they're likely going to want to throw up. So you want to make sure that they're not lying on the back where they'll aspirate their own vomit. And they probably hate you when they get up, which yeah. usually yeah. happens. They they're like, why? They might swing at you. <laughs> that has happened. So this is a follow-up to that. Um, what are some needs that you have right now that people could um, give to you or um, carry Narcan, I think, is the first one, especially like in your neighborhoods. Make sure people have it, know what the signs of an overdose are. But also, like, it's always changing too. Now they're like lacing K2 with fentanyl. So we've seen these like weird K2 fentanyl overdoses, and I don't know what to do with that. There were three men found t- dead in West Philadelphia because they bought crack. They thought it was crack, it was laced with fentanyl. Um, so overdose signs are, are now changing just because the drugs are changing and we don't necessarily know how to keep up with it. But that would be like first and foremost, just carry Narcan and know how to use it and just have it on you all the time. Um, and then secondly, I mean, we take donations all the time, like food and toiletries and undergarments. Clothes too, but undergarments seemingly are like the big things that clients ask for and they just feel cleaner when they have like new underclothes on. Um, but we take food all the time too because we're open 11 hours a day, so we're just trying to find anything to hand out to people who are hungry. Yeah, and other ways to get involved um, that I would add, um, Circle of Hope are trying to start a compassion team surrounding these issues. There's a meeting next Friday at 6.30 at uh, 2007 Frankfurt Ave. Um, if you're interested in that, Prevention Point takes volunteers, right? Yes. Yeah, you could volunteer there. You can volunteer with um, Project Safe. Um, does a lot of um, needle-related work. And, and they have a new drop-in center on Monmouth Street. Oh. Just like down the street from Prevention Point, um, Project Safe has a drop-in center. They let women shower and stuff like that. So I know they would always take donations. And the New Day Drop-in Center, also on Kensington Avenue, um, will take donations of food, clothing, they do volunteers too, so yeah. And on like a citywide level, keep your ears open for different like community listening sessions. Um, if you feel like we should have um, a comprehensive user engagement site, there are many places where you could go and show your support for that. Um, and just more people like showing up and saying that this matters to them um, goes a long way. Like, it, 
sometimes it seems like as soon as one out of another uh, another kind of drug just kind of runs rampant. So just like how do you deal with the fact that there's just like multiple layers of addiction? You know, what, you know, how do you like evolve like a spiritual practice of like prayer into your work to really stay grounded and stay committed to the work? Yeah, so one thing I think um, that you're getting at a little bit, um, one thing we always wrestle with when someone is starting treatment is um, treating the mental health side. It's like, should we treat the mental health first and then the drug dependence, or should we treat the drug dependence and then the mental health? And the mental health a lot of the times stems from this like really serious trauma, like, Carrie was talking about people. Um, and it's going to be different for every person. And sometimes you try one way and it doesn't work. And you got to try a different way. Um, and I usually find that um, therapy comes a little bit farther down the line, like counseling services. Um, people have to get like their really immediate need met of like their health being okay um, before they can start to think about their emotional health a little bit more. Um, and sometimes it starts with also taking um, some behavioral medication as well. Um, but it's, yeah, kind of like playing between those two things and figuring out what works. I don't know if you'd add something to that. Yeah, I just, I think it's not a one-size-fits-all type of thing. Like, I think um, doctors and mental health professionals have to have these individualized plans um, to really, like, assess and treat the individual for the substance use disorder and then for whatever other things might be happening at the same time as that. And I think what... Like if, if a mental health professional is doing their job well, they're not gonna get just at the root of the disorder, they're gonna get at the root of like trauma and probably mm -hmm. loads of it, typically. Um, and just the trauma, the trauma after the starting of you, like homelessness is trauma, being incarcerated, trauma, um, doing sex work, trauma. So there's just so many levels to it and it definitely has to be individualized, I think. Maybe one more. Wes. So this might be like too peripheral, but I just trying to think through the like you're saying like other drugs that like people like buy not knowing that there's like fentanyl and stuff in it. Like why does that like that's just a confusing thing, like especially if you know, how does that play into so like why does that happen? Yeah. The dealers like to experiment. The day that I was saying last week that I was just like running from one to one to one, the whole time I was running past the dealers who were just like watching it all happen. Um, but I think also we have to look into, and as people that like love Jesus, we have to look into like the dealers and those like 15 and 16 year old guys standing on the streets also have loads of trauma probably and also like have not had ideal life experiences um, and oftentimes are also using. So there's like so much that goes into that, but it's funny you say that. I told one of my clients, I was like, get your weed from West Philly. Don't get it anywhere near Kensington. It's probably going to be laced with something. It's not going to be what you think it's gonna be. 
Yeah. yeah, and fentanyl is, it's a synthetic opioid. Um, it is a lot more powerful and a lot easier to make. Um, cheaper. And cheaper. Um, so, like, it's pretty economical on the side of the dealers, um, and which is why it's getting laced in with a lot of stuff. Fentanyl is also like about a thousand times more potent mm -hmm. than heroin, um, so it will cause people to overdose. Uh, even if they're used to using so many bags of heroin, if they use the same amount of fentanyl, they're almost certainly going to overdose. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something dangerous. beyond fentanyl too. Carfentanil. Car Car yeah. Which we, have we seen any in Philly? We've seen yes. There was like one weekend where there was some, and that is, uh, that is what they actually used to like tranquilize elephants, ge elephants ginormous oh. animals. So. If a human uses it, you could imagine. So two grains of sand of mm -hmm. carfentanil, which is absorbable through the skin, can put you into overdose. Mm -hmm. wow. So if you're giving Narcan to somebody and you see powder on them or anything, don't touch it. Um, if, if you have gloves, put them on. Gloves, a breathing mask, and Narcan. Yeah. Those are the three. <laughs> Always with me. <laughs> yeah. Anything else? Um, thanks for the dialogue. Um, I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and um, Andrew's going to lead us in a song. Um, just use this time to kind of think about what we've been talking about and maybe say some words to God about it. Um, I know he wants to hear what you have to say. Um, God, um, we want to hear um, the voices of people affected by this, and it's hard to even think of the words um, to know what to say, but um, heal us in all the different vast ways that healing is necessary. Um, may your light be found in our city. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.